0: Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm
1: Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey.
2: All right, today we are talking about Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino. A little bit about Rebel Talent. In this book, Francesca Gino shows us why the most successful among us actually break the rules rather than conform, and how rebellion brings joy and meaning into our lives. Whether we want to inspire other people to action, or grow a business, or whatever we want to do rebel talent intends to show us how we can succeed by breaking the rules. So that's a little bit about the book. I would love to know what you all thought of the book overall, in particular, the way rebel is defined in the book. Let's get some some early reactions to what you read.
0: Okay, I'll just dive in. I had mixed feelings about the book the first time i read it and i read it i read it once and skimmed it again cuz i came away the first time feeling like it was lovely stories about mm-hmm. anecdotal successes and it felt a little lightweight and it felt a little like it understated some of the risks mm-hmm. of being a rebel, I'm a rebel who's lived with the risks of being a rebel my whole life. And so there was a bit of resistance to that. On the other hand, when I thought about the people that I know who struggle with Rebellion, the stories, I was like, you need to hear these stories. And so when I thought about it more, I wanted to go back and see whether I had just missed the pieces that I wanted. And when I went back, there was more about some of the costs and there was a little bit more about some of the challenges. I still wanted a little more, but I, I came away with a sense that it was a more balanced book than I originally thought it was. Right.
1: That's so interesting because I think I worked my way through it pretty slowly, partly because there were so many stories. And then when I went back today in preparation for this and went through and saw where I highlighted, then I felt like I pulled out a lot more. The interesting thing to me is when I Pulled things out and I looked at the big points, whether it was the titles of the chapter or at the end, the eight principles. It felt like it was very similar to other things that we have read, which I like. I know that we've been doing this now for a while, and I think it's so interesting to see similar things in different books from different writers because different people will resonate with different packaging. And yet there are some very core things. So when I went back and looked at this, I wasn't as convinced that it was actual rebel type behaviors, as opposed to things that we know are important for leadership. I'm kind of curious to see how we continue to unpack this, because there are things that we have talked about in terms of authenticity, in terms of perspective, in terms of diversity, from a leadership viewpoint. So what does it mean to add that lens of rebel to these same concepts?
2: Yes, it's an excellent point because there's one lens on some of these behaviors like authenticity, bringing others along or being honest and speaking up when something needs to happen, not being afraid to call it. I think there are people who maybe do this more naturally that they've just been more skilled at it. And some people who I think hopefully through books like this are inspired to learn, but I think there are probably people who look at these and think, I never thought of that as rebelling against something. I just thought those are skills I either have or want to learn, but what am I rebelling against? And I think in this book, There's a framing around breaking rules and not conforming, right? I suppose what's interesting to me is the idea that if you're not stepping up in these ways to really lead, you are conforming. And I think I I didn't really think of it in that way, that if you're not seeking out diverse perspectives, if you're not actually encouraging dissent, the opposite of these behaviors being conformity was what was a little bit new to me, right? If you don't reveal yourself, if you don't share of yourself, that's conformity. And in a way, I think the framing of this book sort of positions it as like, shake it up a little, right? Rather than like, learn this new skill and practice it. It's like, try shaking it up and see what happens. And I think for some people that packaging,
0: as you put it, Alyssa... Will resonate, and maybe not for others. the thing that really struck me was that when I went back the second time was the context she set at the beginning about how she had studied people who broke the rules and got into trouble. And yeah. that for her, this was diving into people who break the norms and thrive. The really interesting thing about the rules piece, is a lot of the rules that the implication is when you sort of dig into like which are the rules that you're breaking is that they're not like the laws, they're the norms. And then the assumptions and the cultural dominant practices that are, she's talking about breaking the rules. That positioning about what is the upside of stepping out of the norms framing was really a good reminder that this was a book coming from somebody who had looked at sort of the places that this goes wrong. Yeah, And then this is the question of why should you even consider it? Why should you not just do what you're told the whole time? And the answer is you miss out on a lot of possibilities if you always do what is expected of you.
2: Yeah, exactly. The positioning is the creativity that gets unleashed, the possibility that gets unleashed, the potential in you and and the resourcefulness in you that could get unleashed is worth the risk, is at least part of the thesis here. I, I also think, too, that when you think about the word rebel, referencing the, the identity component of that, I was struck by some of these stories that are in here, because it's so chock full of stories, in how many of these folks, if you ask them, would would have self-identified as a rebel or not? Some of them would and some of them wouldn't. And I think that goes for leaders too, who are reading this book, right? Like you said, Kate, some people may go in being like, yes, I'm a natural rebel. I question things. I I do this and do that. So there's an identity piece that's mixed into all of this where the labeling matters, right? What helped me digest the book and, and helped me resonate with it was even though I don't really attach that label to myself, I don't consider myself particularly <laughs> rebellious as such. I think this idea of what are the, the costs of not doing it and the upsides of doing it helped me see it in a, in a more cost-benefit analysis way. That, that, that uh, yeah. resonates with me more than kind of a question everything type of rebellious language.
1: That was something that really struck me was this idea of the cost of conforming. And as you said, Nithya, missing out on opportunities, also the personal cost. Something that jumped out at me was when she says there's actual damage to our self-esteem when we're praised for inauthentic behavior. Mm -hmm. So when we kind of go along to get along and then we're praised, we actually start to lose more and more of our own individuality. So the, the personal cost as well as then the organizational cost of conforming, that put a different spin on it for me as well. Yeah, the
0: organizational cost of demanding conformity and the cost-benefit analysis of really of how much constraint you put on and how much room you have for dissent is so important As the world changes really fast and as technology just transforms everything on what seems to be like a daily basis, because organizationally, you have to keep the lights on. People need to get paid. There are things that need to happen. You know, your regulatory filings need to get filed. Right. And you have to be adaptive. That adaptiveness requires people thinking outside the box. And organizationally, that's a huge challenge for pretty much every organization in the world right now.
2: Yeah, even organizations in industries that purport to be, quote unquote, rebellious, right, or progressive or disruptive, <laughs> all and these, these great words that we hear, even there, it's hard, which I find fascinating, because I think we maybe associate conformity and groupthink and all these things that, that Gino talks about. I, I don't know about YouTube, but at least for me, I associate those with kind of stodgy old industries, you know, not not really operating in the new century. It's as true at the kind of fancy, fast paced tech companies as it is at these so called stodgy places. Just because your product may be disruptive, it doesn't mean that your culture or your approach or or ways of thinking are necessarily disruptive too. So I really think. Everybody yeah. can, can benefit from this. yeah. Yes. And
0: the moment you've had success with a disruptive product and you try and repeat that or scale it, all of a sudden it's so easy to go, all right, let's find those best practices from those old stodgy places. Uh-huh. <laughs> and to forget all of the things that helps you get to where you are, which is super interesting. I mean, I spent my late teens and early 20s living in a community for artists and the conformity in our Black, Colored hair with heavy boots was tremendous. We were like a hundred people who were all the same in our non-conformity. So I,
1: yeah. Hilarious. That's what I was thinking is that, is there such a thing as dynamic conformity where you feel like you're doing something different And as you said, Kate, there could be some really great results, but then you fall into, okay, so, you know, we just created this great product and we did it this way. So now this is the way we do things and you stop questioning Mm -hmm. and looking for those different perspectives and that diversity of thought.
2: Yeah, that's right. Speaking of seeking out a diversity of thought, I wanted to just click into the way rebel talent is actually defined in the book. As we said, it's primarily told through stories and examples, which I think really helped bring them to life. But I'm someone who likes a good list, a good good framework. Give me a framework any day. (laughs) I think I'm probably I'm learning
0: to appreciate a good framework. It's taken me a while to come around.
1: Yes. I know, you give me a hard time about liking frameworks. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but to, to summarize here, and, and you both can keep me honest on this, I think the, the key talents that are outlined are novelty, curiosity, perspective, diversity, and authenticity. There's overlap in a sense among some of these, right? I mean, I think You can't really have a comfort with novelty without curiosity, I think. (laughs) And I I also think you can't necessarily have perspective without diversity. So they're extremely linked. I don't know that there's as hard a line among the five of them that they each have their own unique traits. But what I do think is that probably the common thread among all of them is an open and actively curious mind. And that may seem like an oversimplistic statement, but it's amazing how in the course of work and in the course of day to day, we can get so caught up in the business as usual without meaning to, right? Subconsciously, there's so much to do (laughs) that we just get caught up in the doing. And we actually don't take the time to take a step back and question why we're doing what we're doing or to push back or to rethink. And we've covered that concept in so many other books, as you know, uh, like Think Again and, and many others. But I think the point here is that we can get stuck in a pattern and that the rebellion may come in in just pausing and questioning, which can make people uncomfortable. But I think that's the point. What do you all think of that?
0: I think there's a lot to that. The thing that I find really interesting is as an agile coach, an enormous part of what I'm doing is helping people have those reflection rituals and planning and pausing and figuring out what the cadences are. And at some point that becomes so normalized that we do all of those things, but don't actually ask the deep questions. And so shaking it up takes another twist at that point. Yeah, because that tendency to like do what's comfortable and what's familiar. At one point, I wrote this one down because it was so spot on as far as I'm concerned. She said, rebel leadership means fighting the natural human urge to stay with the comfortable and the familiar. That constant Mm -hmm. need to shake it up and to be like, I'm comfortable, what's dangerous here now?
1: Yeah, that willingness to be uncomfortable. That willingness to say, I don't know, let's find out, to say that knowing that there's some discomfort there. But I also kind of like the angle of almost fun that she Uh puts on that. There was something that it just made me laugh as I continued reading, and everything was like, So we tried this. So, you know, we had this question. So we ran this experiment. And then we asked people to do this. And then we, and it was like her world is just this one big laboratory of let's find out. And so I loved that feeling throughout the book that then reinforced what she's saying in this, in terms of, I don't know, let's find out. And when we're looking to find things out, let's be curious. Let's bring in those different perspectives and then let's do some self-reflection. So to your point, Nithya, to me, it was all linked and they all went back and forth with each other to form this overall idea of shake things up, see what can come from something new.
2: Yes, exactly. It's a spirit of experimentation. And it amazes me sometimes how many leaders at companies will claim to be in favor of experimentation, who will claim to be agile, Kate, to use that word. We build in an iterative way and we want to be innovative, and how in practice that doesn't actually happen. And you know, just to name it, there are risks to doing that. Yep. And and we'll talk about that here in a second because that's a really important point: is the the risks and the pushbacks and and all of the pitfalls and things. But if we really were to question ourselves deeply here, what would really be lost at the organizational level? Time, money, maybe other things, right? But but largely, it's time and money that we're afraid to lose in the spirit of experimentation, but What if we could take a page out of Gino's book and and out of the books of researchers and experimenters and look at work more like a lab than like a factory? I do think things would be different if we asked what if and, and just tried things more.
0: I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting listening to both the two of you in the last sort of couple of things that you said, Nithya, you sort of hit on the spirit of experimentation and Alyssa, you hit on the playfulness. And I actually think that this is one of those places where intention matters so much that spirit and attitude are are huge the phrase positive deviance it can't be like dist- like you can't do it destructively it's so easy to be like i'm in it for me and i'm gonna just like yes throw things up and see what happens because it's fun for me to watch what happens when i stir the pot right it has to be in service of something that matters and it has to be held lightly and playfully or it has a tendency to either turn into just vocabulary so that's i see that all of the time where there's this vocabulary about experimentation and we're going to place a bet on this but actually what it means is like we've got our long-range plan and here's our strategic plan and we expect these experiments to play off this way and actually what we've got is a work plan Right. But we use all of this language of because we've read all the right books. Right. That's the thing. Like you read all the right books and like, <laughs> OK, we have to be playful. Like all of the books that we discuss, like if we've read them all. We know that you need trust and you need authenticity and you need sort of stepping out there. And so we're going to do that. Yeah. Like this. And we're going to make sure we get it right. <laughs> and it's that like attitude of we're going to get it right that kills it.
2: Yeah. That's exactly what needs to be let go is that <laughs> yes. we're going to get it right thing. It's like the vocabulary. Oh my goodness, Kate, that reminded me of yes. And we've talked about this concept of yeah. yes. And that's drawn from improv comedy. And I just, I love it when I'm sitting in meetings and I hear someone say, I'm going to yes. And that, and then, and then they go on to just totally push back and disagree. And <laughs> yes. And is,
0: yes. And is an introduction
1: <laughs> to no, absolutely. Exactly. Yes. Right? Yeah. all the time. That's so funny. Cause I was just in an experiential exercise with some students and that was a big takeaway for me was the idea that yes. And can be almost weaponized to use yeah. a term. Yep. I know yep. Kate has brought up before, but that idea of we put the language in. So we think we're being collaborative and we're building and we say yes. And, but the intention is not behind it. So there's actually ways to have the intention without those specific words. And there's ways to use those specific words with the wrong intention. That's right. right? The people that I really love are the people who hate to hear the word no.
0: And so some of them actually train other people and say, so whatever I ask for, you tell me yes, but. (laughs) And I'm like, okay.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I'm drawn into this thing of the positive intention behind rebellion, you know, to to circle back to what you said, Kate, there's a way of doing this where you can make it about you and Uh be like, you know, I just want to (laughs) be disruptive or I just want to say no to things. I just want to be contrarian maybe. And I think that does distinguish positive deviance from, I I guess, just plain old (laughs) deviance. And, and that's an important distinction for all the reasons we're laying out. You can't just do it to do it or to, to poke the beast. It has to be in service of whatever you're committed to, whether that's the company mission or just in service of better teamwork. There has to be some kind of outsized goal here. And I think that's reflected in all the stories and all the stories we read. There's some bigger thing that is the ultimate outcome that they're trying to achieve. And yet there isn't much attachment to
0: that outcome.
2: And I think that's what helps these folks really experiment.
0: Yeah, there's something that I find missing in her qualities that I think is the one that makes the deviance positive. It's not just the perspective of seeing things as, as other people do, but it's actually the empathy. And the connection and the we're all in this together, it's in service of something that's not my ego, that is grounded with that empathy. And that's where the positive comes from. If you've been in a room where there is this kind of positive deviance as a collaborative way of being, and I know we've been in the rooms because we've been in these rooms together <laughs> where we've had yes. this feeling where there's this this sense of we're wrestling with the hard stuff and it's crunchy and uncomfortable. But we're in it because we know we're looking for something that m- is meaningful, that is bigger than the conflict, that is bigger than the dissension, that is powerful. And we're in it with each other knowing and trusting that somehow this is gonna grow us in our capabilities of achieving our goals and move us further towards our goals. When it happens that way, and that trust that we're in it together for each other, when it's there, it transforms the ability to be comfortable with what is deeply unfamiliar, or at least willing to stay in it. Yeah, and
2: the willingness to stay in it is definitely, a crucial part of this, because I want to talk a bit about the the risks of doing this or the pushback and the discomfort of doing this, because we talked earlier about cost-benefit analysis and the cost of not doing this. I I want to talk a bit about the costs of being a rebel in the way that Gino describes. And Kate, you alluded earlier to the fact that it's touched on, you know, maybe not as as much as you wanted it to. I, I felt similarly that I wanted to hear more about that especially in the context of you know, today's work environments where there's, there's a lot of talk around you know who has voice in the workplace and, and who's really heard and who has power and things like that. And so it's touched on, but I'd love to expand upon it here. What was your sense of how that discomfort is discussed in the book? And I'm also curious to
0: know whether you've ever experienced that yourself. The thing that really resonated for me, was implied in terms of this, which is she talks a lot about Batura, the restaurateur, the chef who sort of restaurant defied Italian cuisine from the bottom up. And even becoming a chef was defying his family. I think that's the first thing that happens is that for so many of us really trying to be authentic about who we are and open to novelty and open to to challenging the norms is it puts us in conflict with our families and our cultures of origin. I think that's a huge, huge thing to just be aware of that finding a way of navigating those boundaries with our families can be really interesting. My daughter reads books where her favorite kinds of books have what she describes as a found family, people who have separated from their family of origin for whatever, and they become a gang, a crowd of people who work together. I spent, have spent years in and out of various forms of queer community, and the language of chosen family mm-hmm. is very powerful in communities where there are so many people who've been rejected by their families of origin for being who they are that's a really huge cost personally for a lot of people for my money i think that's the biggest sort of why people need the language of rebel (laughs) to embrace this because it feels like a deep rebellion on a more corporate level couple of things. like So I was talking to an agile coach recently who said to me a story from one of her mentors who was like, it's your job to get fired. If you think of your job being to get fired, it actually, if your tendency is to hold back and not ask the hard questions because you need the job, mm-hmm. thinking of it's my job to get fired is like, I have to ask the hard questions, the ones that might actually turn the tide that might actually be the ones that they don't want to look at that will give them the answers and you mentioned who has voice and that kind of piece conversation in the women in tech community i went to a talk with someone who was talking about how to counter sexism in tech and hidden misogyny and all that kind of stuff and one of the women that was there said every time i speak up i feel like i'm about to get fired Hmm. and the speaker said yeah that's the work." you risk being the person that they want to get rid of when you speak up.
1: I have a much lower stakes example. <laughs> uh, I love that. That's good. Cause I always go for like big drama. <laughs> <laughs> but I think back to when I started working as a recruiter, I was a little bit of a, of a pain to some hiring managers because they would say, this is the role. This is the description. So this is the kind of person I need. And I need someone who's done this and done that. And I would I would continuously push for rather than hiring people for their past experience of hiring people for their potential. Mm-hmm. These were not the highest level roles. So to me, being a stickler and saying they have to have this many years experience of doing this exact thing discounted everything else they could bring to the role, and the fact that people were intelligent and could learn the specific parts of that role. And I know I annoyed people. And <laughs> eventually there were people that I brought in who, if you just looked at their resume, the hiring manager would say, this isn't a person for this role who were wonderful. I then got a little bit of a earned reputation of saying, you know what, I'm going to challenge what you say you need. And if you give me a chance and you go with this, you might end up with someone who, In this case, there were quite a few theater people who were making a transition into corporate. And I was like, you know what? So they don't have five years of an executive administrative assistant experience, but they can adapt, they can adjust, they can learn, and they can actually be the right person for that role. I know that I felt like a rebel. And again, much lower stakes than examples that Kate was sharing, but that's what came up for me, in terms of being in a very corporate environment that said, this is the way we hire. You're our recruiter to find people for these roles. So this is what we're looking for. And to say, you know what, what if we looked at this differently? That's awesome. It's such a great
2: set of examples around even how to manage the discomfort and manage the pushback, because sometimes it's not easy to do. I would probably say most times it's not easy to do because it's a job, it's a thing that pays our bills and a thing we depend on. The dynamic is not necessarily in your favor because you're being paid and you've been hired to do a thing. And I think our conditioning our whole lives is do the thing <laughs> and get paid and, and keep doing the thing. And so it takes a certain comfort and patience with ourselves and with the possible changing of that dynamic to be able to say, this is worth getting fired or earning a different kind of reputation to be able to do this because there's something else that is bigger, whether it's the strategy or the commitment to hiring diverse talent, uh, like Alyssa brought up, there's some bigger commitment that makes that discomfort worth it. I think in the minds of many of these folks, equally, there may be certain things that you decide aren't worth that. And I just want to name that that's okay too. It doesn't mean burn the whole place down. (laughs) Like it may not be worth it. (laughs)
0: This thing about work and work being the place that pays the bills is really important and really makes a huge difference. If you're new in an industry or junior, or you're of a visible minority, or you have language issues or some kind of other thing that makes it feel, whether it's true or not, and it may well be true, if you feel like getting another job is going to be hard, I mean, getting another job is always hard. But if you feel like it's going to be systemically hard, or you can't afford to go without a paycheck, because of family costs, needs, or whatever, of course, you don't want to risk those kinds of things. And that's totally normal. And it's part of the analysis. I think it's really important for organizations who are trying to get innovation out of people if you want people to feel safe to challenge the status quo about how business gets done and you're not willing to turn around and demonstrate and commit loyalty to them you're not going to get innovation from them i want to pivot now to talking about the eight
2: steps that Gino outlines in the book to becoming a rebel leader, since after all, we're here to talk about leadership. I want to take just a minute here to to first read out the eight and bear with me because I think some of them are worth a deeper look than others in my view. And I'm most curious to know out of these, what to you felt like it really resonated? Maybe what was surprising? So just real quick here, Gino lists out, seek out the new, encourage constructive dissent, open conversations rather than closing them, reveal yourself and reflect, learn everything and then forget everything, find freedom and constraints, lead from the trenches and foster happy accidents. There's a lot in each of these, just to dig into maybe one or two that we liked the most. What did y'all think of these eight
1: steps for rebellious leadership? I really liked them. There were two that really stuck out to me. The first one was that learn everything, then forget everything. That idea of learning everything and being so comfortable in it that you have these foundations and that having those foundations and then being able to forget that actually opens up all these new possibilities. It's funny because I must be in a little bit of a theater mindset today, but (laughs) that's what I thought of is how you watch actors learn a script word for word, learn their blocking step for step so that they can be so comfortable in it that they can forget it and just really be in the moment in the performance. Mm -hmm. So that was the, that was the analogy that came up for me in that idea of, you know what, you learn it so that it's there, but then you forget it so that you can create something even bigger in that same space And then the second one that really, really stayed with me was find freedom in constraints. That idea that sometimes we feel so constrained and we can get very focused on the constraint itself. What if we flip that perspective and say, okay, so these are the constraints, what's possible within these constraints and Mm -hmm. to open up that thinking. Those were the two that, that really stayed with me.
0: The one that I really am in a bit of a thing about these days is the encouraging constructive dissent and how active. That has to be and how much safety there needs to be in an environment for dissent to feel constructive and how much work really needs to go into not responding badly when people make you feel stupid and when people have ideas that at first you're like, what? It's hard to really, really be open to dissent. One of the stories that I absolutely adore in this book is the stuff about Blackbeard and the deep democracy on the pirate ships. In this regard, the role of the quartermaster that serves as a check on the captain of the ship, if we're not actually engaged in a battle, when command and control leadership, fine, we'll follow the captain. Everything else there's this deep democracy and there's this role that is specifically cruise representative. And Alyssa, you've been bringing up the theater analogies. I think a lot about how in a union company, the stage manager who is the project manager of the process is the union rep for the actors. The project manager is protecting the people who are being the most innovative and vulnerable and i think that that's a really really valuable thing to think about is just how much structure it takes to provide that safety and you have to commit to it and the other one that struck me because it's really hard to do when we work from home is fostering happy accidents Hmm. that we just have so many fewer unplanned intuitive pass in the hall kinds of moments so what can we do in our organizations to actually structure ways for things to not go as planned and just emerge because it's really hard when you have to actively and intentionally connect to a meeting
2: yeah, how can we we structure more unstructured time and and spaces yeah. in a sense. Yeah. I love what all of you are saying. All of those really resonated with me too. I think what I'll add to what you're saying is this thing of learn everything and forget everything. To me that's the really foundational one to all of these because I think it applies so much to just how as leaders Your so-called expertise can get in the way of doing Mm -hmm. all of this, right? Whether it's Mm -hmm. encouraging uh, dissent, fostering happy accidents, all of it, you need to have the humility to let go of what you know. And one of the things I like to tell my team, certainly that I lead, is that I like having a really clear, structured plan, not just for its own sake. I do like it for its own sake, but (laughs) not only for that, (laughs) but it's so that... When inevitably something goes off the rails, I actually feel like I have the freedom to improvise, very similar to that theater example. And I feel that when I have planned and I have done the work, I am more likely to hear dissenting views. I'm more likely to be creative because I've done the work. I think it's a reminder that you can't really get comfortable with these kinds of conversations unless you've done the work to be able to listen and learn, know what's out there, know what existing patterns of behavior. There are learned what past and current strategy are. You have to do the homework and then kind of hold it lightly. Don't hold it too tightly, I think is the key here. Otherwise, if you're holding it too tightly, your people are going to know, and they're not going to speak up Okay, to your point. They're not going yeah. to do that. And, and they're not going to f- have that playfulness that's needed to kind of randomly come up with something crazy, right? It's just that
0: mindset isn't even really going to be there because they know it's not going to be rewarded. Yeah. And thinking about the anti-pattern, the pattern that sort of doesn't manage to get you into the spaces that you're having these conversations of someone who's leading a meeting and who's done all of the prep work and has got a proposed solution because they've thought through all of the things. And so they've got an idea of what works. And if you come into the meeting and present that solution, rather than presenting the context and some of the questions, it feels like a done deal when it lands in the room. And so it doesn't actually feel like it's inviting conversation. It feels like I say yes or I, depending on your power, say yes and disagree in my head because it's having done that work that allows you to play, but you have to hold lightly to your solution. The other one that we see all the time in organizations is you do all the work, you come into the meeting, you get all of the things and the opinions and the questions and the ideas from other people, but you're not really listening because in the back of your mind, you already know what decision you've made. And so it's that forgetting your conclusion that is so important. You don't have to forget all of the work that you did in there, but... To have those constructive conversations, you have to hold that conclusion lightly or even forget it. Or you can be challenging yourself and say, okay, can I come into this meeting with two possible conclusions? At least then I'm open to conversation because I'm not stuck on one.
2: All right. I think it's time to shift to our big thinkaways from Rebel Talent. I'd love to know what were the top nuggets that you're wanting our listeners to chew on?
1: My think-away is her advice to follow a tangent. I think sometimes we feel like we are on a certain path or we're thinking something through and something comes up and we see it as a tangent and we veer back to the path that we're on. I like the think-away of the next time something comes up, follow the tangent, see what comes up, see what becomes possible, And ask that question that she also asks, that's what could I do?
0: I think for me, the think away that I would like to offer to leaders is that place of what can I do to make it feel okay for my people to engage in dissent?
2: My think away has to do with how you can tap into rebel talent in your personal life. Uh, We've spent a lot of time talking today about rebel talent in the workplace and what leaders and teams can do to tap into this for work and creativity to flourish. But what about who we are with our families, our friends, our partners? What could be different there if we were to really re-examine how we're going about our days, how we're spending our time How we're thinking about something, how deeply we're engaging with something. What if we could be more accepting and welcoming of the rebels in our own personal lives and really listen to what they have to say too. That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really helps us get
0: the word out there. Tell two friends. Also, be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates. Our website
1: is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com.
0: Leadership Arts
2: Review is a for Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.